This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining. In today's episode, we're going to be going over the Apple and Epic case, the verdicts in. I'll be giving you my opinion on what I think this means for the future of Apple. Does this materially damage the company? Does it change their app experience? How much of a hit is this going to be on their revenue and earnings? We're going to be going over all of that in this episode. We also have some news that has concerned some investors in Vici. This is one of my bigger holdings, and we got news that they're diluting the shareholder. They're issuing more shares, which a lot of us are conditioned to believe that if any company has a dilution, if any company offers more shares, That's a bad thing for the investor. I want to address this in this episode because share dilution, especially for REITs, is not something that's unexpected and it's not something that's necessarily bad at all. So we'll be going over it. My thoughts of what I think of this $100 million stock offering from Vici. And then we also have news that Ray-Ban and Facebook have teamed up to make the first Well, the first smart glasses that are realistic. There's been a few attempts, but these are the first ones that actually look decent that I could actually see people wearing. So I'll give you my thoughts on these and what I think they mean for the future of Facebook. So we have a lot to jump into in this episode, a lot of news to get to. If you like this type of content, be sure to subscribe to the channel so you can follow along for free. Now, this is my passive income portfolio. It's a dividend growth portfolio where I invest in what I consider to be high quality dividend paying companies. Now, let's go ahead and jump into the Apple and Epic news. In full disclosure, one thing that I think is important to highlight before we jump into this news is that I have a significant holding in Apple. I currently have $50,000 of value in this holding, $14,900 of gains. And if I compare this to my other holdings and my other investments, Apple is literally twice as big as my next biggest holding. I have a lot of exposure to this company. I've done that intentionally because I think it's a wonderful company with a lot of great products, a great future, and I think that it's priced reasonably right now. So I'm invested heavily in Apple, and I think that's important to point out before we jump into this news. The verdict was overall mixed. There was 10 counts total, Apple won nine of them, and Epic won one really important one. So each of them kind of won and they kind of lost. I seen articles say that this was a loss for both Apple and Epic. The big verdict that Apple won is that they're not labeled a monopoly. Quote, the court does not find Apple is an antitrust monopolist in the submarket of mobile gaming transactions. That is a huge ruling in favor of Apple. They now have that on the books, on paper. They can cite that during any future trials that they have been labeled to be not a monopoly in gaming transactions. But I think Epic also had a decent victory. Quote, however, it does find that Apple's conduct in enforcing anti-steering restrictions is anti-competitive. And that is the major thing that Epic won, is these anti-steering restrictions. Steering is a way of saying directing your users. And Apple has a lot of restrictions around directing users. For instance, if you go to the Netflix app on iOS and you log out, there's literally no place to sign up for Netflix on the app. You cannot register a new account on the Netflix app on iOS. In order to sign up a new account, of course, you have to go to netflix.com. And Netflix would like to point that out. If you want to sign up, go to netflix.com. But Apple restricts them from doing so. 
So Netflix literally has not only no way to sign up, but they also don't have anything pointing out how to sign up. They just have a login page and users are supposed to just figure out to go to netflix.com all by their own, which obviously is very simple. Millions of users have done so, but regardless, it's not the best user experience for users to have to figure out how to sign up for this app. Spotify is in a similar situation. Like Netflix, they don't want to have users sign up with the in-app payment solution and share 30% or 15% of their monthly recurring revenue with Apple, so Spotify has no sign up on the iOS app. There's simply no place to register a new account on the iOS app. And Spotify, like Netflix, doesn't have a link directing you to the website in order to sign up. Spotify says something like, you can't sign up on the app. We know this isn't ideal. My new app on the iOS store called Qualtrum, which is an accompanying app to a website called Qualtrum.com, is something that I also face the same challenges. Since I'm not a big company like Netflix or Spotify or Amazon Prime, Apple forced me to have in-app payment solution, even though this is an offering that's included in the Patreon. So all my Patreon members have access to the Qualtrum app, but Apple still required that I offer their in-app payment solution so that if anybody finds it in the iOS store, they can sign up directly there without going to Patreon. And Apple would not let me steer users to Patreon. So I know how this treatment feels as well. Instead of Apple just allowing me to offer a login for current Patreon members, I had to offer their in-app payment solution, which overall just ended up confusing customers. And this is what the ruling changes. In a win for developers, but not specifically Epic, Gonzalez Rogers ruled for a permanent nationwide injunction blocking Apple not only from keeping iPhone users in the dark about alternate ways they can pay, but potentially allowing developers to actually stick their own purchase mechanism into their own apps. It heavily depends on how the courts define a button. So stay tuned for a lot of friction and experimentation around that. So this is where things get a little bit confusing. We know from this ruling that app developers, like Netflix or Spotify, or even with my app Qualtrum, will be able to link out to other payment methods. I'll be able to put a link in there that says, hey, go to Patreon to pay for this. You actually don't have to use the in-app payment solution. But we don't know if they can actually have the payment processing done right in the app. And those are two very different things. So a lot of this depends on how the little nitty gritty details play out, which right now I really don't have a clear answer for. But one thing that I'll highlight is Epic specifically didn't have a big win here. They say it's not a win for Epic for two reasons. Epic breached its contract with Apple and they're forced to pay back all the money that was essentially stolen from this breach of contract. Second, because even if Epic did want to now insert, say a PayPal button into Fortnite, it can't. Apple terminated Epic's developer account when the company breached its contract, and Judge Gonzalez Rogers confirmed that Apple is completely within its rights to keep Epic off the App Store for good. So if Apple wants, they could keep Epic out of their App Store indefinitely. And that is part of the ruling that has not made Tim Sweeney, the CEO of Epic, happy at all. Like Apple's attempt to retaliate against all Unreal Engine customers, the refusal to restore Epic's Fortnite developer account is vindictive and nonsensical. We're fighting Apple over their iOS terms, but this ban blocks Fortnites from Macs too. Nobody's arguing about the Mac. Tim Sweeney wants his game back on Apple, especially in South Korea where they don't have to go through Apple's payment solution. But Apple's currently saying, no, we don't think we're going to let you back on. Apple also seemed to have a bit more positive of a reaction from this ruling. They say today the court has affirmed what we've known all along. The App Store is not in violation of antitrust law. As the court recognized, success is not illegal. Apple faces rigorous competition in every segment in which we do business, and we believe customers and developers choose us 
because our products and services are the best in the world. We remain committed to ensuring that the App Store is a safe and trusted marketplace that supports a thriving developer community and more than 2.1 million US jobs and where the rules apply equally to everyone. That's Apple's kind of big business positive response. I don't necessarily agree with all their conclusions there. I don't think that all the rules in the App Store are equally applied to everyone. Now, Tim Sweeney's response to this wasn't quite as cherry. He says, today's ruling isn't a win for developers or for consumers. Epic is fighting for fair competition among in-app payment methods and app stores for a billion consumers. So he outright says this wasn't a win for developers and consumers, which I disagree with. I think this was a win for developers, not necessarily consumers. Gene Munster, one of the Apple analysts, highlights that what consumers really want above all else is convenience. They don't want to be directed to a lot of different payment solutions and payment methods. They want one way to pay, which is convenient and easy, which is what Apple has offered up until now. Uh, For a typical consumer, the ability to manage their subscriptions and their in-app purchases in a single place like they can on OS, the security, some of the provisioning around it, I think that there's value there. I ultimately bet on uh, humans being lazy, and if the price the same, they will likely just continue to transact on platform versus take a lead from a a steering inquiry from uh, an app developer. I agree with Gene here. I think what most customers want above all else is to be lazy. The way that I would phrase it is convenience. Customers love convenience. They choose convenience above all else. If one option is a little bit more expensive, but far more convenient, I think that most people will lean towards the convenient option. So overall, all things considered, I think that this was a good ruling from the judge. I think that it both met some of the concerns from Epic, but it also didn't destroy some of the very unique things about Apple. There wasn't any major dramatic changes like allowing entire other app stores to be installed on the iPhone, but it also relaxed some of the restrictions of Apple, specifically with their anti-steering, allowing developers to reach out and direct users to different payment solutions, which I think is completely reasonable. So all things considered, I thought this was a good outcome for both developers and Apple. Now, how will this affect Apple's revenue and their net income? The worst case scenario estimate is that it would affect 2% of Apple's revenue and 4% of their net income if every major game developer steered people away from Apple's in-app payment solution. The worst case scenario is also pretty unlikely. So I don't think we're going to see that big of a hit to Apple's revenue or their net income, but I think there certainly will be some hit if some of these major developers do direct users to other payment solutions. Now, moving on from Apple, we also have some news that Vici Properties, one of the real estate companies that I'm pretty heavily invested in. It's my biggest real estate company by far. I have $21,000 of value in Vici, as well as $3,500 worth of value in MGM Growth Properties, which Vici's buying. So I really have around $25,000, give or take, invested in this company. And they just announced a new $100 million stock offering, which means that they're diluting current shareholders. They're selling shares of the company back to the shareholders. And I think most of us have it in our heads that stock offerings and dilution in particular is a pretty scary bad thing. Here's a scene from the social network talking about dilution. What was Mr. Zuckerberg's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Mr. Moskowitz's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Sean Parker's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Peter Thiel's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. And what was your ownership share diluted down to? 0.03%. 
In this scene of the social network, we see Spider-Man there get his shares diluted down to 0.03%, and that's a very bad thing. Nobody wants to be the guy having their shares diluted. Nobody wants to be the Andrew Garfield in the situation. But one thing we have to keep in mind is that REITs are not like normal companies. Because they have to pay out 90% of their net income as dividends, they don't have a lot of retained earnings to be able to buy new properties. So the way that they fund future acquisitions is through issuing stock. They dilute. That's the way that they grow. This is a very normal part of their business process and shouldn't raise red flags. Here's Realty Income Corp's shares outstanding since 2006. Do you notice a trend over time? This is Realty Income Corp, one of the go-to strongest REITs in the market for decades. And they continually dilute shareholders. They issue shares every single quarter. And while they're doing this, their dividend steadily grows and their stock price per share appreciates. Here's Store Capital's shares outstanding over time. You can see the exact same trend. They dilute shareholders every single quarter because that's how they fund new acquisitions. So while they're diluting shareholders, the stock price is going up and the amount of dividends that they're paying to the shareholders is increasing as well. Here's National Retail Properties. This is a wildly successful REIT. They likewise dilute shareholders every single quarter to fund new accretive acquisitions. This is how these companies grow. It's a way of funding their operations. The principle of it all is pretty simple. You're an investor in this company. You're offering them investment money. They're going to raise $100 million from this dilution. They're going to take your money, the $100 million. They're going to apply leverage to it from different banks and different investment groups. And then with your capital and with leverage added to it, they'll purchase real estate at very attractive cap rates that you can only get with their type of scale. This is the way that these businesses function, and it's an incredibly good business model. And I wouldn't be surprised with Vici in particular to see a lot more dilution in the future, because this is a particularly fast-growing REIT. They're doing acquisitions like crazy. Now, this is a research paper I put together specifically about Vici for my patrons, but I want to highlight some of this to all of you. This is the timeline of Vici acquisitions, and you can see how many acquisitions they did every single year. In 2018, MGM Growth Properties offered to buy Vici for $5.9 billion. Fast forward to where we are now, and Vici's buying MGM Growth Properties. So how did this turnaround happen? How did Vici grow so fast? They rejected the offer in 2018. Vici then started buying things rapidly. Vici buys Octavius Tower at Caesars for $508 million. That brings in $35 million in rent. Vici buys Harris in Philadelphia for $242 million. That leases for $21 million. In 2019, they made acquisition after acquisition. They bought five separate huge locations in one year, bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars per year in rent. In 2020, Vici bought multiple Harris locations, bringing in an additional $154 million in rent. And then in 2021, Vici buys a Venetian for $4 billion, leasing it for $250 million. That one hasn't closed yet. And Vici's also buying MGM Growth Properties for $17.2 billion, leasing it for $1 billion. This is a lot of really big acquisitions, and this is a much faster moving REITs than most REITs. And they can't fund this 100% through their rent collection because they have to pay out so much of their rent collection through dividends. So part of the way that they fund this is through stock offerings. That's going to be a continued theme with Vici. The important thing to pay attention to with REITs in particular is not whether or not they're offering new shares and diluting shareholders, but whether those share dilutions are accretive whether they're generating positive returns for investors. For instance, we can look at realty income's 
AFFO per share growth. That's adjusted funds from operation that takes into account any type of dilution. Every single year, despite the fact that Realty Income Corp offers more and more shares and they dilute shareholders, their AFFO, the amount of money that they earn per share increases. The shares that you initially purchase, those same shares are earning you more and more money. In 2017, the AFFO per share was $3.06. In 2018, it was $3.19. In 2019, it was $3.32. And in 2020, it was $3.39. Every year, Realty Income Corp's AFFO per share goes up. The percentage increase for Realty Income Corp is in 2017, they increased AFFO by 5.1%. In 2018, they increased it by 625 in 2019, they increased it by 4.24. And then in 2020, because of COVID and some of the rent collection problems, they only increased it by 2.1%. But even with all the troubles they faced, they were still able to increase AFFO per share, which is pretty incredible. Now compare this to Vici. Vici's AFFO per share growth. In 2018, they collected $1.43 in AFFO per share. In 2019, that moved to $1.48. And then in 2020, it was $1.64. So on a percentage basis, that means that in 2019, they increased their AFFO per share by 3.5%. And then in 2020, when other REITs were struggling to increase their AFFO per share, and most REITs had negative AFFO per share, Vici increased theirs by 10.8%. And Vici highlights the importance of this on their investor presentation, showing that in 2020, despite the fact that they're diluting shareholders and issuing more shares, they're still growing their AFFO on a per-diluted share basis faster than every other REIT all the other major ones. Most of them actually had declines in 2020 because of rent collection problems, but Vici still managed to grow theirs above 10%. And this is again with dilution factored into the calculation. This is on a per diluted share basis. So the important thing is not just to look at dilution, but to look at whether it's being used wisely. If the AFFO per share goes up, that means that they're using the dilution for your benefit. They're growing the earnings on a per share basis. And so as long as this percentage is increasing year after year, Vici's doing the right thing. If this number starts to decline or go flat, that means that they really aren't accomplishing a lot by diluting shareholders. So in this context, with all the data available, I'm not really concerned about Vici wanting to raise more money from shareholders. So far, they've used it wisely. They do what's called accretive acquisitions, meaning they're buying attractive properties at attractive prices, and they're offering those rewards back to the shareholders. So the reason that I'm investing in this company is I think they can make more money with my money than I can. So I'm investing in them to invest in their properties and grow their portfolio. If I was really concerned about the management's ability to use this money wisely, I wouldn't be invested in this company in the first place. Now it's time we jump into the next big iterative leap in technology, which are glasses that are kind of creepy and can record people without them really noticing. They're the Ray-Ban stories. And of course they're being created by the most trustworthy individual, Mark Zuckerberg. Hey everyone. We've believed for a long time that glasses are going to be an important part of building the next computing platform and unlocking a whole new set of experiences for people. So I'm excited that today we finally get to share what we've been working on with Essilor Luxottica. We wanted to build something that would enable you to easily capture and share experiences from your point of view. And we thought if we're going to build best in class glasses, a great place to start is with the iconic Ray-Ban frames that people already love. So I'm proud to introduce to you Ray-Ban Stories.
with Ray-Ban's story. All right, so I have to pause there. My first initial impressions are, these don't look so bad. In fact, they look really decent for techie, nerdy glasses that you can record things and do all this tech stuff with. If you can remember the Google glasses, these were the Google smart glasses. The Google glasses almost remind me of something medical, like you're a surgeon going to start performing surgery and you need some lighting equipment on your head. These are just something I could never see people really wearing around casually. But the Ray-Bans look okay. They actually look decent. In fact, I don't think I would notice that they're actually tech glasses without somebody specifically pointing them out. Now, Mark goes on to highlight some of the things these glasses can do. You can capture photos and videos, listen to music or podcasts, or take phone calls, all while staying in the moment and without even taking out your phone. Whether you're on a hike, cooking, or just hanging out or playing outside with your kids, you're gonna be able to quickly capture that experience and share it if you want to. And this is just the start. Ray-Ban stories are an important step towards a future when phones are no longer a central part of our lives. And you won't have to choose between interacting with a device or interacting with the world around you. Mark's right. Of course, the phone is inconvenient to take out of your pocket. So the thing that we went to after that was the watch, but that requires you to look downwards. And now we're at the eyes where instead of looking anywhere or lifting up anything, it's just attached to your head all the time. Essentially, what this is leading to is us having smartphones on our face. We've moved the smartphone from our pocket to an inch away from our eyeballs. We worked with Essilor Luxottica to design an experience that combines the style that you expect from Ray-Ban with as much technology as we can fit into these classic and iconic frames, starting at $299. So let's take a look. Now he goes through all the specs of what these glasses can do. They have two five megapixel cameras built into the front of them. They have a capture button on the side of the frame that you can hold down to capture 30 seconds of video, or you can say Facebook, take a video. So you have to address the glasses as Facebook, which I think is a little bit odd, but that's the hands-free way of doing it. They have open air speakers built in that go right above your ears. And of course, Facebook has privacy as your top priority. So they have a little white LED above the camera that signifies to others that you're currently recording. And I'm sure that nobody, no one's going to ever take a black marker and simply write over that LED. That's something that I'm sure will never happen. And of course, he highlights that it has a timeless design of Ray-Ban. Now these glasses are not augmented reality devices. They don't augment reality in any way. All they can do is take short clips of video that can be uploaded to Facebook later, or they can take phone calls. And that's the two basic functions so far, but Mark highlights how this is the launching pad of them going further into augmented reality. We believe that this is an important step on the road to developing the ultimate augmented reality glasses. Now, there's a lot of technology that still needs to be developed and miniaturized to deliver the AR glasses that we all envision for the future. Imagine seeing holograms, turn-by-turn -turn directions, or being able to play chess on a table in front of you with your loved one 3,000 miles away right from your glasses. And that's what I think is really important to Facebook and Facebook investors. These glasses are one step in the overall pursuit of complete augmented reality. And whatever company is able to encompass that vision and create the best augmented reality devices and own that market will likely have a massive, massive new business. And there's a lot of companies that are going to be competing. So even though these glasses in particular probably only appeal to a certain small subset of Facebook users, I think the more important message here is that augmented reality is coming and it's gonna be here sooner than people think. All the big tech companies are pouring money into augmented reality and they're gonna be coming out with more devices like this in the future. 
Now that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to see the progress of this portfolio over time and whether I gain money or lose money, make sure you subscribe to the channel and you can follow along for free. Other than that, I'll see you in the next episode.